Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along right there in the bulletin. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. And skipping ahead to chapter 23, verse 12 says, Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest. And the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make mention uh, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. But in it, uh, uh, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep uh, the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you uh, gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord your God. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. FYI, okay? I, I, let me make one comment on that last verse. Uh, you, I'm not going to talk about it, but it's, it's speaking about some of the religious practices of the neighboring nations in the ancient Near East. And so uh, this was about not mixing the worship of Israel, the true God, with the worship of the pagan gods. So I'm not going to talk about that. If you have questions, you can, you can, you know, look it up in your Logos Bible software if, you, if that's where you work. Okay, so let's, uh, let's, let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we thank you that your word studies our souls. And uh, here we uh, find a commandment at the end of the Ten Commandments that pierces our souls and and lives so deeply. And so we pray that uh, your word would now uh, be a a, a knife that that cuts us, but also um, would heal us with the balm of the gospel. Uh, We need your truth. We need your grace. So open our hearts. Teach us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we are looking at the the last of the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet. Uh, You shall not deeply desire what someone else has and wish that it was yours. And this is uh, such an important commandment, especially in our day, because uh, probably in no time in history have we been so aware of other people's blessings in their life. You know, every addition to their house, every achievement, every cute thing that their children do, um, every fun night with friends is displayed for us on social media. We see it all. It's right before our eyes. And uh, the whole experience of the internet, of, of social media, is a massive temptation to covetousness. 
Look at the things that you have and I don't have. And I'll tell you, uh, to be in that position is, can be painful. If you have disappointment in your life, if you have unfulfilled dreams, you have suffering in your life, and then you see other people's lives that seem to be where all their dreams are, seem to be fulfilled, or, or uh, um, uh, their life appears to be free from suffering. One of the biggest questions in our spiritual lives is, what do we do with that pain? It's painful. Well, I think the Bible says a lot about that. One of the most important answers is to learn contentment. And contentment is an incredibly rare quality, there's, um, yet there's hardly anything more valuable that you could ever acquire in your whole life than contentment. And it's as if God is saying, you desire all these things. You desire a house, or you desire a job, or you desire romance, or you desire friends. And he says, turn all that desire, that striving after those things, and turn that desire to get this one thing, contentment. This is the thing to learn. This is the thing that will be enough for you. So this morning, uh, we are going to dig in and study what is, we're going to study covetousness and contentment and answer these three simple questions. What is covetousness? What is contentment? And how do I learn contentment? Okay, three simple things. What, what is contentment? covetousness, what is contentment, how do I learn contentment, and, you know, what we've been seeing throughout the Ten Commandments, maybe you've experienced it, you thought the Ten Commandments were very simple, you know, they're just a small, simple statement, and you find there's a whole world in each one of them that is true with the last one as well. So, uh, three questions this morning, the first is this, what is covetousness? And the Apostle Paul, later in the New Testament, in Colossians 3, answers that question. This is what he says in Colossians 3, 5. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul defines covetousness as idolatry, the worship of false gods. Covetousness is turning an object into a god that you love and you worship and you give yourself to like you should only give to God. And actually, the theologian John Frame has pointed out that the first commandment of the Ten Commandments and the last commandment of the Ten Commandments are basically saying the same thing. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And the last commandment is, you shall not covet. You shall not take anything in the creation and love it, desire it, more than you desire God. So the bookends of the Ten Commandments are our worship. What do we love more than anything? And there's a certain uh, brilliance to how God makes you shall not covet the last commandment. Because, you know, if you're a, a rule keeper kind of person, you might make it through the first nine commandments and say things like, well, you know, I, I worship the God of the Bible, and I'd never worship a statue, and I don't take the Lord's name in vain, and I go to church every Sunday, and I speak respectfully about my parents. I have never murdered anyone. I do not commit adultery. I don't steal. I've never lied in... Uh, you know, court of law, you know, do not bear false witness. I've never lied in court. God must be very pleased with how I'm <laughs> with me. But there are many people who behave like those, you know, first nine commandments on the outside. They're devoted religious people, but their desires, their inner life can be filled with hatred of others, envy, deep lust, arrogance, and self-righteousness. 
And the 10th commandment says that God cares about our inner life, about our emotional life, our desires. He cares about our heart. You can't get through the 10 commandments without inspecting, analyzing your heart. And actually, that was, you know, true, the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. If, if you know the Apostle Paul, he was a, a staunch Pharisee. He'd memorized huge portions of the Old Testament. And he had a precision to his religious life. He was very careful about his religious observance. And he said that when he looked at his religious behavior, he thought, you know, I have so much I can be proud of. I'm very self-confident in my religious life. But if you read Romans 7, he says, this was the commandment. When he really thought about those words, you shall not covet. This crushed his perfect picture of who he thought he was. And it was his desires, it was in his desires that he saw who the real Paul was. Because who you are flows out of your desires, the things that you love, the things you long for. You know, some of you might think that my life comes out of the things I believe in, my knowledge, maybe my knowledge of the Bible, my worldview. That's not true. You know, the things that you talk about, the things that you teach your children about, The things that you spend your money and time on are not the things that are in your head. They're the things that you love, the things that you desire. That is what drives your whole life. It's what just drives all your decision-making. And and the 10th commandment is not simply saying that it's wrong to desire to covet. It's not wrong to desire things. There are certain things that it warns us about coveting. And particularly, it's the things that belong to our neighbors, the things that people we know have. And so covetousness has this spirit of comparison and competition that, that's, a, that's a huge part of it. And I think there are two things that we tend to covet in particular about our neighbors. First, we covet people's possessions. And, you know, that, that, of course, that's the first thing in the 10th commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. And it goes on later, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbors. We are watching each other, what we're buying, what we own. And how do we decide whether we have enough wealth or possessions to make us happy? Our tendency is to look at what other people have and compare what we have with them. So you know, we often think, you know, I was happy with my house until I saw your house. And man, that would make me happy as that house. It all of a sudden changed. It wasn't until your house was in the picture. So first, we covet people's possessions. Second, we covet our neighbor's relationships. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And one of the primary areas covetousness will come into our lives is by looking at other people's relationships and wishing that they were ours. We'd say, you know, if I had a marriage like that, if I had a family like that, if I had friends like that, then finally my life would be happy. And you might wonder, you know, you might have thoughts like this and say, yeah, I have all kinds of thoughts like this running through my mind. Aren't they harmless? I mean, do they really, does it make that big a difference to have desires or longings or thoughts like this? Well, for some reason, God puts it here in the Ten Commandments. I mean, it's right alongside, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal. Why is that so serious? Well, very quickly, when these thoughts are stirred up in us, covetousness transforms into a deeper evil called envy. 
And covetousness, you see, covetousness is a desire for a thing. The focus is on the thing, right? The house, the ox, or the donkey, or whatever, you know, the car, whatever it is. But with envy, the focus is turned away from the thing and focused on the person. And it is a hatred of the person who has the thing that we don't have. It's a worse thing to hate a person than to desire a thing. And, but covetousness is the first step there. And by the way, it's one more step from envy, hating a person who has what we have and wishing we had it, to hating God. Because ultimately, who handed out the houses and handed out the jobs and who handed out the, the families and the life situation or the family I was born in? Who passed all that out? It was God. Who's, so all that quickly, you're two steps away towards a hatred of God. And so covetousness is a seed that grows into a tree of poisonous fruit. I think it's interesting that, you know, this shows up in the legal code of Israel. You know, Israel's becoming a kingdom. They're becoming a nation. And it's interesting that in the legal code is a law about your desires, your thought life, you know, the things that are going on in your heart. There's a law about that. Why is that? It's because a society is defined by its desires. That's what makes a society. We are in a society that has lost a vision for the formation of inner virtue, the formation of our desires and longings. We just assume whatever my desires and longings are, I should just follow them no matter what. They don't need any kind of formation. They don't even need any guidance by God. We trust them no matter what. And the Lord, but the Lord says that what is in our hearts never just stays in our hearts. It always comes out and it does damage. So, you know, for example, you, you know, King David, the story about King David, who stole Bathsheba, breaking the Eighth Commandment, and then he got her pregnant, breaking the Seventh Commandment, and then he murdered Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, breaking the Sixth Commandment. And where did all that come from? He coveted his neighbor's wife. The Tenth Commandment was the beginning. It was the heart where the breaking of all the other commandments came from. So what is covetousness? It is the inner life of desire that looks at other people's possessions and relationships and begins to evaluate its own life in comparison to them. And this desire transforms into envy and ultimately a hatred at God. And, it, and ultimately, it is a desire that never simply stays in the heart but leads us to break all the other commandments. Covetousness is a monster. You might have thought it was a small thing. It's a monster. So naturally, that leads to the question, well, okay, coveting is bad. What's the inverse of coveting? If don't covet is the negative command, what's the positive command? And the Bible's answer is contentment. So what is, then, contentment? And I want to say this as clearly as possible. The happy life is a content life. The happy life is a content life. The Tenth Commandment is telling us that we have a tendency to think, you know, if I had that house, if I had that kind of family, if I had that job, if I had that kind of wealth, then I would be happy. And the Bible says the thing that makes true happiness is not having the right kinds of things, but becoming the right kind of person. That's what happiness comes from becoming the right kind of person. And, you know, if I could return to the Apostle Paul for a minute, you know, the Apostle Paul, after he became a Christian, he uh, 
endured some unimaginable suffering in his life. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was imprisoned. He said he had countless beatings. He was stoned. He was beaten many times, often to the point, almost to the point of death. He, he was homeless. He had no food. He had natural disasters coming upon him. He had friends that betrayed him. He's, you know, he's homeless, uh, sleepless nights. And uh, in Philippians chapter 4, when Paul is writing from prison, these are the words that he says. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what's interesting about Paul talking about contentment is he says that both abundance and need are challenges to contentment. You know, it's both the rich and the poor who are obsessed with possessions. Both are. And Paul says that in the face of both, he's learned the secret of contentment. Actually, that word for the secret of contentment, it's a Greek word. This is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it was used in the ancient world for being initiated into one of the the mystery cults of the ancient world. And he says, I've been initiated into a mystery cult, a secret called contentment. That's what I've been initiated. That's the world that I, I have come into. And so the question for us is then, well, what is, what is contentment? And I want to read a, a definition from Jeremiah Burroughs. Jeremiah Burroughs was a, a Puritan author who wrote a classic book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And in his opening chapter, this is, this is how he defines contentment. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. It's a long definition. Let me read it again. Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Now, Burroughs, if you go read the book, you find he takes each of those words and unpacks them in really profound ways. But I'm just going to highlight two things from that definition of what contentment is. The first, contentment is an inner quiet. And Burroughs is really good because before he starts saying what an inner quiet is, he says what an inner quiet isn't. And he says that having an inner quiet doesn't mean that you don't feel the hardships and afflictions of life. You do feel them. And he also says it doesn't mean that you you don't cry out to God when you're in those afflictions and say, God, help me. Or even share those burdens, speak those burdens to, to friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. It also doesn't mean that you're in a place where you say, I never need help. You, that you don't ask people for help and say, you know what, I'm going through a hard time. I need someone to be with me in this hard time. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that because Burroughs knows that some of us are going to hear about contentment and that we're going to sit up straight and zip our lip and we're just going to suffer on and no one is going to know about it. And he says that's not what Christian contentment is. It's not a stoic kind of unfeeling or detachment. But he does say that there is a difference between kindly grieving and a disordered vexation. Contentment is opposed to an unsettled and unstable spirit, whereby the heart 
is distracted from the present duty that God requires in our relationships toward God, ourselves, and others. So there, there is a derailing that can happen where I just, I can't even serve and care for other people. I can't love. I can't even be gracious and kind towards other people because it's so overtaken me. And what he says in the way, the language that he describes is your soul is kind of like this house. And he says, the affliction is allowed, he, he says, can come into the suburbs of your house. You know, kind of the outer places of your heart where you really are feeling it. But it never, it doesn't come, with contentment, it doesn't come into the inner private room, the inner temple, he says, where Christ alone is the quiet. He is the peace. And so there's the inner quiet, and no matter what else what happens, that is my joy, and that is, that is my stability, is him. And uh, so what he is saying is there's a difference between feeling the pains and sorrows of this life and having an unsettled and unstable spirit. So contentment is first an inner quiet. Second, contentment is a submission to God's wisdom. And, you know, I want to say this vision of contentment, you're not going to learn this in one sermon. (laughs) This is a lifetime. And one of the prayers that we all have to learn together over a lifetime is that prayer that Jesus taught us that your will be done that we can say to our Father who loves us, whatever comes, I trust you. I believe in you. I will receive it. And, I, I, and, and I, will, I will believe that even if it hurts, you are. I submit to your sovereign will. I receive your sovereign will. And that means that every pleasure becomes an undeserved gift of love that we receive gratefully and every disappointment We understand that God in his wisdom has deemed necessary for his purposes in the world and in our lives. So it's not a stoic unfeeling. You know, Jesus prayed this prayer. Was it wrong for Jesus to say, I don't want to be crucified? (laughs) That's what he said to the Lord. No, of course that's not wrong. You know, is it wrong uh, to want to be married if you're single? Of course not. God wants to hear those desires. And we should pray, Lord, I desire to be married. You could pray that many times. And yet with that we say, but I trust you. And I will wait. And I submit myself to your will and your wisdom. This is the heart of contentment. And I'm telling you, if you're striving, we're all striving for certain things in our lives. You know, you're, maybe you're striving in your career. Maybe you're striving for a romance and a relationship. Maybe you're striving for money. Maybe you're striving to, you know, run a marathon faster, whatever it is. The Bible's saying if there's one thing that you should strive for in your life is this, contentment, to learn this, become this kind of person. And so this leads to our, the last question Because Paul says that he learned the secret of contentment. And so that's our question. How then do we learn the secret of contentment? And a couple of things I want to mention. I think there's a lot the Bible says about this. A couple of things I want to mention. First, some of the habits of contentment that I think are crucial. If if that's the kind of transformation God will do in our inner life, there are certain habits that lead towards that. But ultimately, we need to know that the habits are not the deepest source of contentment. And so we're going to talk about what is the deep source of contentment as well. So, so two things. 
First, the habits of contentment. What are the habits of contentment? And habits are deeply important for shaping our desires. You know, we're talking about like who we are is the things that we love and we desire. And your desires and loves are shaped by your habits. So, you know, for example, I, I did my first triathlon this last uh, summer. And I, you know, I hadn't done much swimming or road biking before that. And I really, especially road biking, I did not like at first. And yet I had to do it every week. You know, it became a habit for several months of my life. And you know what? After the triathlon, you know what the thing that I was really missing like, oh man, I want to get out in the county on the, the ro- county roads with my road bike. I, I learned to love it because it, it, it was the habit of my life that shaped a love. And the things you give yourself to habitually will be the things that you love and you desire. And you know, you'll notice in the book of Exodus, so you get these Ten Commandments at the beginning of the book of the covenant. And then at the end of the book of the covenant, um, there are these instructions about feast days for Uh, Israel's uh, church calendar. And I think these feast days describe three habits or practices that are essential, you know, or maybe uh, some are essential, but, you know, that are really God has given us to form contentment in us. And the reason these are important is because contentment is not something you will drift into. If you are drifting along life, contentment won't be formed just kind of accidentally. It, It doesn't work like that. Um, there are certain habits that the Holy Spirit uses to form contentment in us. So here are a few of them. The first is weekly worship on the Lord's Day, what we're doing right now. And you'll notice in uh, verse 12 of chapter 23, it says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. This is a repetition of the Sabbath commandment. You know, on the Lord's Day, uh, there's nothing more will shape your loves and your ultimate devotion to God than the immovable commitment to worship on the Lord's Day and to rest. You know, I do think Sundays, even now in our culture, largely non-Christian culture, Sundays are a reflection of our gods, what we love. And, you know, if we have things, you know, like painting my house or mountain biking or watching football that are the things that happen on Sunday, those are the things you're going to start to love. You know, if, if, you're, if you're a house project kind of person, you're going to be thinking more and more, I saw that house, and ooh, you know, I was pretty excited about what I'd done to my house, but I'm, I'm thinking next steps up. Or if you're mountain biking on this is my day of worship, that's the first thing that I go to, you're going to be looking at mountain bikes. You know, I need to upgrade, I need full suspension, you know, or whatever it is that you're going to need. These become our gods. And if you find your heart saying things like, why is God such a stickler? That on Sundays, I got to go to church and I got to worship him. That could be an indication that the loves of your heart have already been formed in one direction. Where are our loves going for? I, this is a first, first habit, weekly worship on the Lord's Day. The God of the Bible is my God. Second is feasting and fasting. You see there in verse 14 where it says, three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. And there are three then festivals that are listed right after that in the verse. The first is the Passover, which is then in the Christian churches. Now we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. And then there's the Feast of Harvest, which then became the Pentecost. And then there's the Feast of the Ingathering, which was the fall harvest in Israel. And the Christian church has followed a similar kind of pattern 
in the church calendar. That we have these feast days. We have Christmas. We have Easter. You know, we have Pentecost. And other churches have other feast days. You know, we have a weekly feast day of the Lord's Day. And these are feasts that God says you need to take the time to remember the things that I've done in history and take time to celebrate before me and praise me and enjoy my good gifts to you. And the church has also interspersed with those feast days uh, fast days. You know, maybe the most well-known kind of fasting period is in Lent, the, the 40 days leading up to Easter. And, you know, I'll often, like, not drink alcohol during, during Lent. Or, you know, you might, you know, have other things that you fast from. Or uh, uh, Chris Van Hoffing, who's one of our elders, had introduced me um, several years ago to once a week. You know, you have a feast day once a week on the Lord's Day, having a, f- a fast day once a week. And so we would fast our breakfast and lunch on Mondays and not eat until dinner. And I'll, I'll tell you what fasting does. Fasting is training yourself. I don't have to say yes to my flesh. My flesh is always making demands of me. I want this. I need this. You can learn. You can practice saying, no, I don't have to say yes to my flesh. And so, um, and so worship says, the Lord alone is my God. Fasting says, I don't have to say yes to my flesh. There's one other discipline in these verses I want to point out is, is tithing. You see that it's mentioned twice there. Verse 15, the last part of verse 15, none shall appear before me empty-handed. Verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. The regular discipline of bringing a tithe, an offering, an offering before the Lord, it trains us in our relationship to money and possessions. Of course that will. It trains us to not overly love these things. And tithing says, all I have comes from the Lord. It belongs to him. It's been entrusted to me. And it's not my God. I'm not attached to it. I'm opening my hand with it. All of these habits of contentment, worship, feasting, and fasting, and tithing, train our hearts into what we love. Now, I know some of you hear this and you say, okay, just because someone does these religious activities doesn't mean they're going to have an inner quiet of contentment. You know, someone could go to church every week. They could, you know, celebrate Christmas or fast once a week or whatever and give a tithe every week, and they could still be filled with envy and covetousness in their hearts. You know, didn't we just talk about the Apostle Paul? He's a Pharisee, and he was like, yeah, I did all the religious things to the T, and yet I was filled with covetousness. What do we say about that? I'd say you're absolutely right. Actually, the Apostle Paul would say you're right. Jeremiah Burroughs would also say that you are absolutely right. Where am I here? All right. Uh, And this was, they agreed that the habits of contentment are ultimately not what form contentment in us, but contentment is a work of God's grace in our hearts. So this is the last thing, is what is the, is the source of contentment? You know, how do we learn contentment? It's the habits of contentment, but also, the, ultimately, it's the source of contentment. And while Paul says that he's learned the secret of contentment, you know, back in Philippians 4 when he's in prison, he doesn't talk about tithing and going to church or, you know, fasting. That's not the secret of contentment. What does he say the secret of contentment is? I, I didn't read the whole verse to you. I saved it for now. This is what he says. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The source of contentment is not our religious activity, but is the grace of Jesus. It is a work of grace that forms a quiet submission in the deepest parts of our hearts. And now Jesus uses things like you gotta, you're not going to know about Jesus unless you come to church. And you know, he uses things like fasting. He uses tithing to teach us about his grace. But some of you will say, you know, I feel that unstable disquiet in my soul. And I know the unstable disquiet in my soul. I just, you can't just turn it off and say, I'm going to stop doing that. And Paul says the secret he learned is that only Jesus Christ can quiet the soul. Only Jesus can. And why is that? Why is it only Jesus? Because Jesus alone has known how to have plenty and how to want. Jesus is the son of God. He owns the universe. He is the heir of all things. He is rich beyond all measure, and yet he came down. He became a homeless man. He, was, you know, he died on the cross. And through it all, he knew that his father loved him. That is what contentment is. And he has that inner quiet, and he says that we can come and learn from him because he's gentle and he's lowly of heart, and we can find rest for our souls from the personal Savior. Jesus trusted in God's sovereign wisdom, and though he cried out that he might not go to the cross, the night before his death, he said to his Father, not my will, but yours be done. Contentment is the happy life but you can't give it to yourself. You can't quiet your own soul. You can't turn off the instability and the unrest. It is a gift of grace that can only be given by the one who sat in the highest place in heaven and descended to the lowest place on the cross. A happy life is a content life, but a content life is only found in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we praise you for these challenging words. You know the unrest, the vexation in our hearts and minds and souls. You know the covetousness that rages in us. Would the lowly, gentle words of Jesus speak to our souls, that quiet? And Jesus the one who knows the love of the Father, would you bring us into that love that we could learn to pray the prayer that you prayed of your will be done. That we could say that freely. We could say that confidently. Train us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.